Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Independence Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Christian Broughton, editor of The Independent, and this will be episode four of our new series, where we take you behind the headlines and discuss life under coronavirus. We wanted to start this podcast series because we're very aware that the experience of reading news websites or our daily edition is that lots of big important headlines um, come at you at once and that can be um, it can be quite overwhelming at times and one of the the great joys of working at the independent is you, you get to have great conversations with your colleagues on today's podcast we have two people joining us uh, from our us team we have holly baxter in new york and we have john bennett in washington hello hello hi christian Hi, um, and everybody is uh, in their respective homes at the moment. So if we slightly talk over each other, that is the joy of the video call, which is something that I think everybody around the world is getting used to too. But things are quite different between the UK and the US. We are recording this in, on Tuesday evening, uh, UK time. So that is uh, Tuesday the 31st of March. It's about lunchtime um, for the other two people on this call. And the US currently is listing 174,467 confirmed cases of COVID-19. Um, and Italy is the next country on the list with 105,000. So it's, uh, it's quite a clear margin now. Holly, in New York, we've seen some quite extraordinary scenes uh, today, particularly of the, um, the efforts to try to uh, react to that and to provide some health care to people happening in um, in Central Park. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we've had um, a few companies and organizations respond in New York to this uh, growing demand. Um, we've had the USNS Comfort Ship, which is an army ship, come and more off Manhattan. And as you say, there's also now a white tent field hospital in Central Park. Um, that field hospital is a joint venture between Mount Sinai and a nonprofit called Samaritan's Purse, as well as governmental agencies, which is actually a really interesting thing to have happen because obviously the way that the US healthcare system usually is, you do not have um, public and private companies working together that often, um, especially not with charities, nonprofits, things like that. And so New York has really managed to make that happen quite quickly. And um, although it looks quite alarming um, as people are setting up white tent uh, field hospitals and things like that, um, New York State has said that 
these uh, the ship and the Central Park Hospital will be mainly used for people who do not have coronavirus. And so they'll be basically trying to shuttle everyone into hospitals in New York City who are testing positive and deal with the increased demand by taking everybody who doesn't have it into these temporary structures. So talk us through how that works. There's so much conversation in the UK about the NHS, the National Health Service that we have here, publicly funded healthcare. Everyone's very aware that in the US, it's a very different situation where if you're not insured, you can run into problems really quickly. And we've had some, we've had some pretty controversial cases of, of people who've been reported with symptoms of COVID-19 struggling to get healthcare, and they've become quite notorious so far. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been really alarming this week, actually, because uh, one, one case that was really big in the American news was one of a 17-year-old boy in California who went to a private hospital with symptoms of coronavirus. He was turned away and then he later died trying to reach a public hospital because he was uninsured. And I think that New York has been thinking about these sorts of issues and has deliberately been trying to mitigate those issues, basically. Um, and the state has always been quite good at, um, at trying to make public and private healthcare work together when it can. It's also been quite good at taking steps above and beyond the federal government. For instance, New York State brought in an extra um, sick pay law recently so that people weren't going to work sick and therefore spreading the virus more. And so the state has actually been doing pretty well in terms of this. In fact, the governor of the state, Andrew Cuomo, has has done so well, even though he is one of the least charismatic politicians ever, that uh, people have started asking him to to run for president. So, yeah, I know it sounds harsh, but it's actually... um, it's a really interesting thing to have happened because there was, uh, there was a piece in the New York Times today written by Alistair Campbell um, saying that Boris Johnson needs to learn a lot from Andrew Cuomo. And um, he basically went through exactly why he thinks Cuomo has suddenly had this um, massive fan base build when beforehand nobody really paid attention to him as a politician at all. And he was saying, you know, he uses facts and stats. He's very sober. He's doing daily presentations to New York City, to the state um, every 24 hours. And he's the complete opposite of Boris or Trump. He's very you know, well-groomed when he turns up. He does a split screen where he's showing a PowerPoint beside him. He's very sober. And uh, this guy who was previously unknown well, not very well known as a politician outside of his state, definitely not on the world stage, is suddenly becoming really celebrated by a lot of people for the fact that he seems like he's in control and he's not this bombastic rhetorician. So New York was quite quick to react uh, when the story started unfolding. I think um, there was clearly a, quite, a, quite, a, quite a scary situation, quite an intimidating uh, set of numbers coming, uh, coming in New York. And New York went to lockdown relatively quickly compared with some of the other major cities around the world. It certainly felt that way reporting on it from London. Um, it seems to have been proven quite right. I mean, whereas some politicians will come to, to Donald Trump later, but um, certainly in the UK, politicians seem to be facing a little bit of criticism for wanting to maybe not react um, and not move to a, a lockdown situation quite as quickly as they possibly could have done. I think Cuomo seems to be uh, 
banking a bit of success here. He seems to be enjoying the perception that he was someone who was strong enough to lead his state um, and lead that city into quite a, a, a quite a big action, quite a bold action. But it seems to have been widely recognised as the thing to do. And yet, the numbers still feel uh, very negative coming out of, of New York. What is what is the city like? What is, I mean, have you? What are the? What, how strict is the lockdown? Have you? When was the last time you managed to venture out of your apartment? So the city is pretty quiet. Um, we've been in lockdown now for three weeks. Uh, we still are allowed to go out for our daily walk, the same as the UK strict lockdown at the moment. Although in the last couple of days, when you go into the park, there are NYPD vehicles stationed along the way and they'll get their little megaphone out and shout at you if you're going too close to people. Oh, really? So yeah, it's definitely becoming a little bit more strict. I mean, there are the tone people... of policing in the UK has become quite a talking point because there was an instance of one particular police force that, for instance, flew a drone um, over a, a, a nature spot where some people had driven so that when they take their walk in the, in the fresh air, um, they could make the most of that time in the area where they wanted to be. And the drone captured this footage on video and people felt they were being kind of shamed into um into uh, obeying the lockdown uh, directives um how to i mean the the people shouting through a megaphone that doesn't feel like kind of soft policing by consent um that feels <laughs> quite intimidating right it's, I mean, it's definitely a surprise as a Brit when you first hear it because you don't expect the police car to talk. So um, when right. you walk past it and it suddenly goes, hey, you're getting too close, you go, oh my God, okay. Um, but people in New York seem to be quite used to the police cars talking at them anyway. It's not seen as like hugely aggressive in the way it might be seen as in the UK. And I think that there's definitely a problem in New York in particular where they do not have... Um, small parks like there are in London. There's really only one large park, Prospect Park in Brooklyn, and one large park, Central Park in Manhattan. And um, you do see the parks getting very, very packed at the moment because people are trying to go to the only place that is open. Um, and they don't really have the option to go to these smaller parks and run around and things like that. Um, so I don't, there's not a huge amount of social distancing going on there, but there are a lot more people this week wearing masks or wearing makeshift masks. Um, as me and my fiance have been doing, just putting scarves around our faces and glasses on when we go out. Um, there's definitely a feeling in the city that the numbers are now becoming quite alarming. And um, I have, I have been able to work out that those numbers are looking alarming to people in Britain as well, because uh, I've got a lot of tentative texts in the last two days from people in Britain just sort of trying to find out if I'm still alive. Um, I even got a text from my brother, and I know when I hear from my brother that it's really bad. <laughs> so um, so I, I know that the news sounds very, it does sound very alarming, but I think you also have to bear in mind that New York State is roughly the same size as England. And um, so if there's 1,200 deaths in New York at the moment, um, and there's 1,789 deaths um, at the time of speaking in the UK, uh, that's, they are kind of directly comparable, really. So I think when British people hear that New York alone has that many deaths and that many people testing positive, they think of it like a county in England. But you have to be aware that the state is actually the same size as the country that you are now in. Sure, sure. So I'm sure that, that still feels pretty 
pretty intimidating for the folks back home. Um, John, how's it feeling in, um, in DC for you? We aren't nearly as, as locked down uh, as New York. Uh, our, our police cars are not yet uh, speaking to us or giving us directions, even though um, I'll, I'll, I will tell you guys that we Americans do need to be enforced. We don't like to be told what to do, uh, even if we know that, that we're taking a risk personally. So I'm not surprised that the NYPD uh, have been ordered to, to utilize those speakers and, and try to get people to spread out. Uh, here in D.C., uh, there, you know, there's an odd business as usual feel. Of course, we're all kind of sequestered in, in a neighborhood or two, depending on where we go to get essentials. But Donald so, Trump is still having his press conferences in front of, in front of journalists in the room, he, right? He is. They've, uh, the last few days, we've been lucky enough to have really great springtime weather. So uh, I think since Sunday, yeah, since Sunday, they've been in the Rose Garden, uh, which is outside, which is more in line with the CDC guidelines on what we're supposed to be doing right now. But uh, before that, they were in the White House briefing room, which is not that big. It's a very tight space. You know, there are 49 seats close together. The, the podium where the president stands and the vice president is roughly four feet from the front row of reporters. Right. Uh, so that was a very tight space. That was not in line with the CDC guidelines. Um, but the president, you know, he likes a good visual. He's a television, former reality television star. And we know he's obsessed with television and he loves to see himself on television. So he wants the show uh, of that daily briefing. He came to, he actually said after not really coming into the briefing room at all, except one time in the first three years of his term, he actually said last week that he's come to, to like the room and he likes the way it looks. So he's going to have these things in person unless Washington starts to have of course, on a smaller scale, we don't have nearly the population here of, of the New York metro area. Uh, but, you know, Governor Hogan in Maryland and Governor Northrop in Virginia and, um, and Mayor Bowser here in the district have warned that the modeling they've seen or been shown shows that the numbers are, gonna, are going to greatly increase in the next few weeks here. And I think there will be some pressure on the White House to to alter how they're doing the briefings. But we know Donald Trump is, is television obsessed and we know Donald Trump is very stubborn. Well, speaking uh, so of TV obsession and TV that, that, that Mr. Trump enjoys watching, there was one particular thing on TV recently that I don't think he enjoyed watching much at all by the sound of it. There was a Joe Biden advert particularly that uh, cut together lots of, uh, lots of quotes that, that Mr. Trump had given about the, about the, um, about the uh, coronavirus crisis um, over time. Um, there seems to be quite a backlash, isn't there? If we've just said that Cuomo is uh, enjoying something of a, a moment of respect and recognition uh, from his reaction towards uh, coronavirus, talk us through uh, whether, whether Donald Trump can expect to, how hard could it get politically for him if this is perceived to have been something that he just wanted to deny or blame on the Chinese or, or not react to fully? How, 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 how bad could that go? And how fair is it to put that charge on, on Donald Trump? It could get really bad for the president, but the polling data, at least so far here, shows that it's going in the other direction. More Americans today approve of how the president has handled this and responded to it than, say, three weeks ago. 
Now, it's not a huge uptick in the polls. His approval rating is now at an all-time high if you, if you average some of the more respected polls. And how, you know, he's in the 60%, around 60% overall in, in how folks think he's handled the response. <clears throat> but still, he does own the response. And it's one thing as we, as we talk today uh, with a couple thousand deaths, if we come back and do this again in two weeks and you're looking at 20,000 deaths here, then it's a different dynamic for the president. And right now he is focused on the death toll. And he is trying to put a message out there that the death toll would be much, much higher had he not taken some steps in the beginning. Now, what he's trying to do there is drown out that criticism that you alluded to, that he didn't do things he could have done much faster, especially with the, getting the testing kits and more ventilators. And, um, but especially the testing kits, that's how South Korea was able to kind of to really keep its death toll down. They were able to identify where the virus sure. was and isolate those folks and isolate those areas. And the criticism here is that, that Trump knew this was coming a month ago, longer really, and, and didn't do a lot then. He, he just dismissed it and, and didn't really believe the intel folks, didn't believe the public health folks that it could get this bad. So he owns this. It's just a little too early to say which way it's gonna go for him and what the public is going to believe. The American public, enough of them may believe that he kept the death toll relatively low and they're not that impressed with Joe Biden and he ekes this thing out uh, in November or it could get really bad, a high death toll and Biden wins going away. There were some pretty um, controversial moments in those uh, press briefings that you were just describing for us in that room. There were two that, that really popped to mind. The first was with Peter Alexander from NBC News where uh, Trump responded to a question by saying, I think you're a terrible reporter or something right. to that effect. Right. And then uh, the most recent one, and really there've been two uh, in the last couple of days with uh, Yamish Alcindor from uh, PBS News. It was a great, uh, a, a great reporter. They're both great reporters. Uh, I've gotten to know Yamish a little bit um, from, from sitting, our, our, my old desk in the basement of the White House was beside her and, and she's just a pro, they're both pros. Um, but what they did, they challenged the president. Both the questions were different, but the spirit behind them was the same. You know, uh, Peter asked the president, what do you say to your critics that you didn't respond quickly enough? And Yamish was actually just asking him about his own quotes. And the president hates when he's hit with his own words, um, especially when they don't land the way he intended them or when it gets a lot of bad press coverage. And what you saw with Yamish, you know, she's an African-American reporter, a female reporter, and the president told her to, to, not, be, uh, to not be threatening, which, you know, uh, is, is a loaded term when you're talking to an African-American person here in the States uh, for our very checkered, uh, very checkered sure. racial uh, problems that we've had over the years. The way, it, the way it, it reverberates within the White House press corps, you saw... Um, you saw the CNN reporter the other day hand the microphone back to Yamish when the president cut her off. And she was trying to ask a follow-up question, all legitimate questions. She, she only asked legitimate questions. Um, but the CNN reporter handed the microphone back to her and, and, and seated his first question that day back to Yamish. We haven't done a lot of that. And that is probably, uh, we, and we deserve some criticism for that. We haven't stuck together all the time um, and done things like that 
You mean we, the, the journalists who get to go to these press right. conferences and right. act together the, and actually be a coherent questioning right. force? For we haven't done enough right. of that. We didn't do enough of that with Sean Spicer. We didn't do enough of that with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And we certainly right. haven't done enough of that with Donald Trump. That's really interesting. Another um, uh, difference that I perceive between the U.S. and the U.K. in this is um, when, the, um, when the U.S. was trying to roll out its support package for the economy, for jobs, uh, for people over there, there was, there was a moment of tension where... Um, is Congress going to pass the measures? Uh, over in the UK, we just get ministers, they just stand up and they just tell us what's happening. So you get, our chancellor just gets on the podium and he says, this is the, this is the um, support that's being rolled out for small businesses, or this is what's happening with jobs. And there's not really a moment where uh, we have to kind of get that through a vote that's held up for a few days while we try to get the package through. There was some criticism was there not around, or oh, some questions certainly put to Nancy Pelosi, whether, whether the political class were really kind of holding up the effort that the, that the president perhaps is trying to push through. Um, is that valid? Should, should politics be put aside in this moment? Is there something about Washington that's less efficient than other countries when they roll out these um, aid packages? The system was designed to not be very efficient, even in times of crisis. The founders wanted, they wanted a fair amount of tension within the system, between the branches of government, you know, the, back to this whole idea that, that America will never be ruled by a king. So, I mean, that was baked into the cake over here. Sure. Uh, it's never going to be pretty. It's always going to be noisy. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi was asked this morning on, on, on Morning Joe whether Congress has any responsibility whatsoever for kind of the uneven or slow federal response. She responded, quote, none at all, end quote, and Christian, I almost fell off my chair when she said that. I have been doing this for long enough. I can say confidently, just like the president deserves blame, Congress always deserves some blame. This thing could have been passed a week and a half. The, the bill that the president eventually signed Friday evening could have been passed Monday morning over that previous weekend. To, to put all of that on Donald Trump is just not fair. It's just not reality. I'm not sure what the speaker was trying to do there. Uh, maybe get under the president's skin because no one is better at getting under Donald Trump's skin than Nancy Pelosi. So we're likely to get a variety of political winners and losers out of this um, terrible healthcare crisis. There's also a huge, huge impact that this could potentially have on politics. Do you think that Biden is, 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 is Biden going to be able to make capital out of this? Is he going to, I mean, he's already got this particularly uh, well-targeted ad that seems to be a uh, TV ad that seems to be getting a lot of uh, airplay. Uh, is that going to translate into votes? He needs to come up with some kind of long-term plan, I think. You know, it's one thing to criticize the president, but if you don't have your own plan that you can explain to people and make people believe it's going to work, um, you know, it, it, it's a hell of a strategy, I think, a hell of a gamble to, to think a bunch of 30-second ads alone and, and sure. some talking points once we have rallies and maybe debates again. Who knows? Maybe this will be the first virtual debate, a series of debates in an election. Um, but I think Biden's going to really have to lay something out very detailed and very targeted to different parts of the country. And um, we're all going to be we're all going to pretend to be shocked when um, when his plan is is heavily targeted to some swing states. Uh, we'll get to pretend to be shocked by that later. Um, as much as people may uh, want to criticize their leaders at a time like this, as you said, from the polling, um, we can see that actually sometimes people want to rally behind the guy sure. in charge. 
That's happening now. Like instinct just to kind of support, yeah. be on board, don't be unpatriotic. Let's get behind everything. But do you think maybe this is a, the moment where the healthcare situation in the US changes? People are talking in the UK about how uh, this is a moment where we need to recognize that the NHS was underfunded going into this, that it had fewer uh, critical uh, intensive care beds per head of population and some fewer ventilators per head of population than various other countries. And the debate over here is very much around whether the NHS was run down too much in the years preceding this crisis. So then a crisis hits and, and, and it just exposes problems in the system. There's healthcare in the US around presidential elections before has obviously been such a sensitive subject. Is this, is this the kind of shock to the, the Medicare system? that really gets things to change. We had just heard from Holly about how, and Holly, maybe you want to come back in here, about how in New York there's been quite an effective uh, combination of public and private um, in, the, in the healthcare sphere. Do we think change is coming? Could this be something that actually puts that on the map? It's kind of unthinkable in previous, uh, in previous years. You might see some adjustments like Holly talked about, state by state. Um, but I would put the chances of this even if it gets really bad, it's really bad now, even if it gets what we might call catastrophic, I just don't see it. I don't see some kind of national health system in America coming out of this or maybe anything. Um, you know, people are just, they're, they're just, they're, they're set in their ways. They're used to this employer-based system that we have, this private system. And I mean, it, I think it would take millions and millions and millions of deaths to even start that conversation. And then as we were alluding to a few minutes ago, then you have to get it through Congress. And then you have to get a president, be it Biden or Trump to sign it. And that, and, and I, I just don't see, I, I see it being a reflection of this tribal nature of politics that we have with Democrats saying, yes, this is the moment. And as soon as you know, you've got 87 or 97% of Democrats saying yes, and Biden gets behind it, Republicans are just going to run the other way and say, let's just sure up the private system. Holly, um, it, it, you edit the comment pages for us over in the US. Are you seeing opinions coming through that are looking for change in society out of, the, out of this crisis? Yeah, absolutely. I've had a lot of pitches in the last couple of weeks about how uh, Bernie Sanders was right. Um, I've seen a lot of people who were sitting on the fence about the health insurance system and some previous Joe Biden supporters saying that now uh, they believe in Medicare for all or they've been kind of pushed over when they weren't sure about it. But I, I really don't know whether Medicare for all as an idea, which is essentially an NHS in the US, would be doable, as John says, because, um, I mean, you can stand around in New York and talk to people as I have, and they all say a nationalized healthcare system sounds fantastic. It's exactly what we need. Um, and then you can travel to Alabama, as I did last year. And I asked a number of people there when I was talking to them in bars or on the street, um, what do you think of that kind of system? And all of them said, you know, it sounds okay, but I don't want to pay for someone else's healthcare. I only want to pay for me and my family's healthcare. And there was a real block when I started talking to them about, well, you know, how about if you paid as much to the state in taxes as you do now per month out of your salary to a private insurance company, and then everybody got healthcare, how about that? They would just say, well, no, that's not good enough because I don't want to pay for somebody else. And there is this very entrenched American individualism that is especially popular in the southern states, but really in all of the states, even in New York, you find a lot of very conservative people in, term, in British terms 
who will have this idea that they will not want to pay for something that is collectivized. And it really, I mean, the coronavirus epidemic has really shown how this falls down. For instance, when Trump said, you won't have to pay for your coronavirus treatment. And then he had to walk that back immediately because all of the private healthcare companies said, hang on a second, we said we'd let people get tested for free, but we're still going to charge them for treatment. Right. And, um, you know, it just shows that these gaps exist everywhere. And I think to plug them all is just going to be so, so difficult, almost impossible. Very and, interesting don't forget, the, uh, don't forget, and don't forget the healthcare companies uh, donate a ton of money each year to incumbents and political candidates, including uh, the president, including the speaker, including the Senate minority and majority leader and on and on and on. It's very interesting mm -hmm. hearing you guys talk about the um, reception of this, uh, the reaction from the public to this to this crisis in America. We've just had um, Boris Johnson over in the UK rewrite a famous uh, Margaret Thatcher quote saying that he's now saying there is such thing as society because look at how everyone's acting together and the whole public messages is re messaging is really all about how everybody in society needs to do their thing. They need to keep their distance. They need to stay at home in order for everybody to get through this together. It's very interesting hearing you guys describe a much more individualistic approach to both healthcare and also to just being told what to do. That actually, you know, the American public uh, being shouted at by somebody yep. in a police car is just what's going to have to happen. Is there anything um, you've seen in behaviorally that's quite interesting in, in how New York or how Washington, I guess, particularly New York, because New York's been so, so hit as to where mm -hmm. the public have had to kind of sacrifice those freedoms? How, how is the public expectation being managed? Are people expecting that this is going to go away in a couple of weeks? Are people really accepting that this could be a longer trajectory? How has that message landed and how has the government dealt with that? I think there's been a really interesting psychological thing that's happened in New York because there is a general perception among New Yorkers that we will rise again, we will get through this. And more importantly, if we stop our daily lives, then something or someone else has won. So at the beginning, there was a lot of talk of 9-11 and there was a lot right. of people actually crowding into bars and into restaurants as if like we can't let the virus win in the same way that it's people did it after 9 isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Like like the this kind of, in the UK yeah we're not going to let the terrorists win that kind of thing and it took a while I think for it to sink in that this virus doesn't care whether you're scared it doesn't care what you're doing it just wants to infect your body and so after that initial rush obviously people then did start to band together and I think there is a very there is a sense in New York that feels psychologically very like being in Britain. There is a much more of a sense of collectivization than there is in the other states. And in the last couple of days at 7 p.m., people have come out of their houses and started clapping in the same way that they were doing in London to the NHS workers. Nice. But for this, they are mainly clapping um, at grocery workers and postal workers. Right. Um, which also tells you about the healthcare system, really. Um, Maybe. But There's now, also an appreciation, though, in American society about the people that make your day work or the people that make yeah. your city function. There is, a, there seems to be more of an overt recognition that you know the guy that collects the garbage or the the you know the guy that makes the coffee or the woman who I don't know sweeps the streets or something. There seems to be a you know a, an acknowledgement of that, which I think is perhaps missing in in UK society. But we should come back to you guys soon, I think, because obviously the, the, the story does seem to be evolving really quickly um, in the US, both in the kind of grim reality of the healthcare and also the political and economic 
implications of what's going on and lockdown as it seems to spread. Thank you very much, Holly. Thank you very much, John. And I just want to reiterate that we do love hearing from listeners. Um, so please do email us at uh, the coronavirus podcast at independent.co.uk. Uh, you can also use the hashtag indie coronavirus podcast. That's indie with a Y coronavirus podcast. And if you use that hashtag on Twitter or Facebook or on Instagram, we will pick that up because we're following it. Um, you can tweet at me. I am at Christian underscore B. If you want to stay up to date with the next ones that we do, please do click the subscribe button. Um, we're available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and other podcast providers too. Thank you very much for listening. 